This is Michael Osterlink. Welcome to O Radio, where we explore individual and social transformation through collaborative action. I'm a psychotherapist with a transpersonal and somatic specialization. I'm also a transpartisan social entrepreneur and head instructor at Seal Fits on Beatwell Mind Academy and executive coach at Spartan 7. Today's show is brought to you by Cosper Scafidi. He's an amazing body worker located in the Northern Virginia area. He has integrated different somatic practices into his work, including biodynamic and mechanical cranial therapies, visceral manipulation, as well as neuromuscular and myofascial approaches into his rolfing work. You can learn more about uh, Cosper at www.cosperscafidi.com. That's C-O-S-P-E-R-S-C-A-F-I-D-I.com. Today's guest is Jim Turner. Jim is a lawyer in the DC metro area who has worked on health and food freedom issues since the late 1960s. He wrote The Chemical Feast, the NATO report on the Food and Drug Administration, and co-authored with Lori Chickering, Voice of the People, the Transpartisan Imperative in American Life. Mr. Turner is the president of the National Institute for Science, Law, and Public Policy, a nonprofit organization that conducts research publishing and demonstration programs in urban agriculture and food policy. Among its publications are a food policy newsletter called Healthy Harvest News, Healthy Harvest, a global directory of sustainable agriculture. Jim also served on the National Commission for the Certification of Acupuncture and Oriental Medicine for 10 years, including five years as vice chairman. He serves as chairman, chairperson of the Maryland Institute of Traditional Chinese Medicine, he also successfully petitioned the FDA for the legalization of acupuncture needles and has represented mercury-free dentists before licensing boards in several states. Mr. Turner now serves as board chairman for Citizens for Health. I first met Jim through his partner Betsy in, I think about 2001, thanks to my meeting Betsy at Ken Wilber's Integral Institute. And ever since uh, 2001, Jim has been a colleague, a friend, and a mentor of mine. Jim, good to see you again. Likewise, good to see you, Michael. So uh, yeah, over the last uh, almost 20 years, we've worked on dozens of different projects. But today, I kind of want to highlight a few of the things that uh, we recently spoke about that you're working on, um, three of them in, in, in general. And I know that you'll kind of connect the dots. And I'm sure there's other Well, if you don't get the one I want to talk about in the top three, I'll talk about that anyway. <laughs> Well, in that case, <laughs> let's start with that. What would you like to first talk well, about? Well, I'm, I'm just going to mark it, and then we can get to your three, but just be sure we don't miss this one. And that is that uh, yesterday, uh, Lori Chicker and I, who were the, uh, you know, he's the co-author of the, uh, of the uh, Voice of the People that you mentioned, and he is, uh, with myself, co-executive uh, editor and founder of uh, the Transpartisan Review. Uh, and we yesterday attended a day-long session uh, a half-day-long session with the Quincy Institute on Foreign Policy, which is actually talking in terms of being transpartisan, looking for a new uh, foreign policy. It was a very impressive, uh, and uh, uh, the thing that uh, got our attention and brought us there, where they had General Protea speaking and uh, Bo Ranup uh, speaking, and uh, a whole range of very interesting people from Congress, Bernie Sanders, foreign policy person, and so forth, all talking about a new transpartisan, they use the word transpartisan foreign policy. Uh, they, uh, it's funded by um, the Koch Foundation and the Soros Foundation jointly. So as a unit, it's a very interesting thing. And you are the person that introduced us, uh, Lori and I, 
to uh, Trina Parsley, who's the executive vice president of that group. So uh, it was an extremely interesting thing. And maybe later on in our talk, we can, in our conversation, we can talk a little, about, a little bit about what happened. That'd be fantastic. Well, let's definitely make sure we have some time for that. I, I just wanted to be sure that was in the top three that we're <laughs> going to talk about. It's the top four now. Okay, great. <laughs> and we'll include the uh, Quincy Institute and a transpartisan approach to U.S. foreign policy, which obviously is uh, much needed these days. But in terms of your background, uh, uh, thinking and training and work, you know, a, lot, a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it is in food and health-related issues. So why don't we kind of start there? Um, one of the issues that you and I have talked about recently, um, one of them are vaccine-related issues. One of them is homeopathy, and one of them is 5G, the new technology. Uh, where would you like to start as kind of the entry point into your broader worldview, your kind of transpartisan analysis of these issues? And well, you think about well, the, the transpartisan uh, argument or observation, I think of it as an analytical tool, looks at the uh, political debates that are underway and uh, argues and we observe and point to uh, the fact that we look at everything as uh, bifurcated. It's got a two-sided framework, uh, left, right. Uh, but as soon as you do that, you create trouble for trying to resolve any issue. So what we've done is, is uh, we've borrowed and, and created a, what we call the borrowed information created, something we call the transpartisan matrix which is a left-right analysis uh, on the uh, horizontal axis and on the vertical axis, it's freedom and order. And what we're saying is that 100% of all people are on that matrix somewhere at any given moment. Uh, by the way, they move uh, every moment. It's, a, it's, a, it's an undulating dynamic, uh, but there are people at the free life, free, uh, free right, free left, order right and order left, and they work to come up with uh, uh, solutions or observations or analysis or explanations, whatever, in that context. And that's what we write about in the Transpartisan Review, and we write about that in, uh, in the Voice of the People, and uh, we talked about that yesterday at this meeting. Now, you ask, how do we enter the three issues that you raise? Um, take, take, take food safety. Uh, I got into the food safety question by virtue of meeting with Ralph Nader in 1968 and having a discussion saying that auto safety, which he was being known for then, was in his writings an example of a breakdown of decision-making in the culture. The decision-making, the policy decision-making was being dominated in his view by concentrated economic interests. And the result was that the full public interest our consumer interests, those are two different interests, but they weren't included in the primary way that decisions were being made. That was his basic argument. His, and that took about two pages in his writings to say. And then he used the example of the auto industry and said, look, it's really bad. Um, everybody who was in the media and who was uh, political and so forth looked at that as a critique of the auto industry. Uh, I was assigned the task in law school to study this with a bunch of other folks to study auto safety. And I said, wait a minute, he's talking about the way our decisions are made. And he's using the auto safety as an example. So uh, my objective then, uh, what I did then was to go to, it took me a long time to get hold of him. We met in Washington. I explained uh, this, what I've just said. And he said, what would you do about it? I said, well, if you're right, any market we look at should be like that. 
And so we kicked around, what should we talk about? And uh, ultimately, what should we look at? And ultimately, we decided to look at food. And the idea was that, um, you know, food fell into the same category. So I said food. And he said, food, that's great. I was the cook in the Army for six months. And I thought that was a fascinating piece of information about Ralph Nader. But in that situation now, if you pick up um, a food safety question, you'll find that the FDA, and this, this applies to drugs, it applies to vaccines, it applies to every issue that we have uh, uh, on the health side, and, you know, and frankly, everything, you know, energy, housing, all of it. But with the FDA, and FDA is a regulatory agency. There are about 55 regulatory agencies in the U.S. government, and they're, you know, and they regulate industries like the FAA. By the way, if you want to see the problem, look at the Boeing. At, at Boeing, you'll see the same problem right there. Uh, if you want to see the problem in uh, any area, you'll, you'll find it. Food. The FDA is told. The FDA is told by Congress, take the food supply, multi-billion-dollar food supply, um, and divide it into two categories. One category, safe, valuable, effective, good. Other category, bad, terrible, harmful. Draw a line and divide it into those two things. And everything falls either in this one or this one. Once you do that, you're doomed. You can't possibly come up with an answer because there are a bunch of things that are obviously okay. And there are a bunch of things that are obviously a problem. And the result is that nobody ever fights about those. There is, however, this huge thing in the core among food and drug lawyers, it's called the gray area. And that place is where all the battles go on. And the battles are very simple. The first battle uh, that comes up is the FDA says, anything that's in the gray area, we're gonna treat as unsafe or bad or wrong. And you've gotta prove that it's not. The other teams, all the other teams are saying, wait a minute, our thing's not unsafe. You can't prove it's unsafe. Our thing has got value. Our thing is, it doesn't cause harm, so forth. And then the battles go around these two points. And the real issue that comes up is, what's the choice of the consumer? Now, when do you say the consumer can't have a choice? That's a very important political question. It's a policy question. Basically, our culture says consumers, voters, citizens, have the maximum amount of choice that the society can, can sustain. The regulators want to minimize the amount of choice. That's the struggle. But no single battle is ever fought on that struggle. It's always fought on the particular transactional issue about a specific things. Is a sweetener safe or not safe? Is a food additive safe or not safe? Is a drug safe or not safe? And then there are all kinds of structures built around it that uh, account for the fact that there's no answer to those questions. And we get into these huge battles. So let's just take the vaccine battle. Please. Okay, so you've got, you've got uh, right now, uh, let's use the state of California because it's the most radical on this. They're mandating roughly 70 vaccines for every child by the time they reach the, by the time they, they reach, um, oh, you know, maybe seventh grade, maybe fifth grade, maybe a second grade. It depends on their, their, their <laughs> age. It's about 70 different uh, uh, um, uh, uh, injection frameworks. Now, now um, they have, uh, they have, so there are a lot of issues that emerge, like, uh, let's say something like the MMR vaccine. There are parents who say, 
I would like to have them separated. I'd like to, and, and by the way, it's all on a schedule that's set, set up by the CDC, and then California just adopts it by, uh, by law, or by, by actually by regulation. But they have 10 vaccines that are required. Uh, three of them are the MMR, that's the measles, mumps, and rubella. Those, those are three vaccines required. And some families are saying, well, you know, there's evidence in the data that if you take them together, you're more likely to be harmed than if you take them separately. We would like the option to be able to take them separately. And the, and the law says, no, you can't do that. Um, there's a, a vaccine, which is the DPT, the diphtheria, pertussis, and tetanus. And some people are saying, well, maybe we would like to uh, avoid the pertussis because there is evidence in the record that the pertussis vaccine actually is spreading pertussis rather than stopping pertussis. It's a big debate in science. I'm not saying it is or it isn't, but I'm saying there's a debate. So some parents are saying, we would like to have our kids not take the pertussis, but they're not allowed to under the law. If they don't take it, they can't go to school. I mean, that's the way it's structured. Or, or there are people who say, well, all these uh, contagious vaccines are really, really serious and we've got to do it and that's why we have to mandate it. But some people are saying, but wait a minute, the tetanus vaccine isn't, tetanus isn't contagious. It's not a contagious disease. So why do I have to take the tetanus shot? And one of the things that comes up when that's raised is that the way they're doing the, uh, the uh, shots now, um, a, a pregnant woman is being recommended to take uh, the the uh, TP, DPT more frequently than the guidelines are for taking the tetanus shot. So in other, and, and on each one of the vaccines, there's a series of discussions like this. And what 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 the what the um, the idea that issues aren't black and white, they are nuanced, brings into the picture is that individual consumers should have the right to make a choice. And what's fascinating is that. Um, there's a there's an art we need vaccines maybe I mean there's an argument that they it's certainly a legitimate supportable argument that we need vaccines but there's an added argument that's made which is not a legitimate argument and that is that they are shown to be completely unequivocally safe basically the argument is that nobody is going to be injured by these vaccines and certainly that's the impression that's created and yet the federal government has paid more than $4 billion to families whose children have been, children and some adults have been harmed by vaccines. So you can't say, how, however important you argue that the vaccines are, you cannot say they don't have any side effects. They are not harmful. They will not kill some children. You can't say that. So then the question becomes, who gets to make the choice of which children are going to put in, in the way of a, vac of a vaccine danger. And um, that's, that's the public policy issue that needs to be addressed. And it cannot be addressed by a, uh, a bifurcated issue. You must, or you can't, you, it can't do that. You, you must take the vaccine or you can't take the vaccine are the two positions that are not defensible. So anyway, that's the vac that's an entry into the vaccine issue using that same bifurcated argument. Let me ask you this. So when they do the safety testing, safety testing for vaccines, do they test the multitude of vaccines that are given to a child or a baby? Or are they just testing one at a time? So they might not even know the negative consequences of up to 70 vaccines over a certain period of time. They do not test them uh, as a unit. Uh, you know, they don't test the whole set. They only 
to the and, and actually there's some uh, there's some concern about whether they actually test them adequately um, at all because uh, no vaccines apparently it looks like from the data it looks like no vaccines have ever been tested um, against uh, the, the, what they do is they, they test them against other chemicals they don't test vaccinated children versus non-vaccinated children they don't measure that so we don't have apparently they don't they don't have data on um, what, what what happens to children that don't get vaccinated versus what happens to children that do get vaccinated. Uh, they also, uh, vaccines do not go through the Food and Drug Administration new drug application process. They go through a public health service process, uh, which is a, a different process. Uh, and there are, you know, there's a, there are structures that are designed to make that be palatable, but it is not the same as a drug. Um, and so, um, Technically, each batch of vaccine is supposed to be tested to be sure that it isn't going to cause harm. Uh, they test it in animals to make sure that it doesn't cause harm. But there's no comparison, apparently, at least we haven't found any, of vaccinated versus non-vaccinated children. Is the standard going through this public health model the same as if you went through the drug model? It's not the same. They're different. Whether, they're, whether it's weaker or stronger or not is a matter of debate. Um, the, 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 the reason that the Public Health Service Act included vaccines was to promote the use of vaccines. That was what it was for. And uh, as the law began to unfold, starting in the, in the, late, uh, in the late 70s, mid-70s, uh, there, so there were so many lawsuits against vaccines that the uh, vaccine uh, manufacturers began to say maybe they wouldn't produce any vaccines any longer. And so at that point, some special laws were involved in the vaccine community. Vaccine companies were absolved of having to worry about this lawsuits there. They have basically, they basically have no liability. So if they do cause harm, uh, that's considered to be uh, not a problem. Uh, for these uh, payments that are paid to the children or their families, that's a special court, not a, not a particularly uh, visible court. Uh, that uh, makes the decision, and they make the decision on the basis of some um, some express rules that say uh, if if these things happen to you within the period of time after the vaccine is given, we will compensate you. Uh, but in do, do, do the vaccine manufacturers pay into this fund, or is the, this the, the, yeah, the price of a vaccine includes seventy five percent seventy five cents for each dose uh, goes into that fund. Uh, it's, uh, it's spent about $4 billion so far since 1988, uh, and uh, it has about that much in the, in the fund right now, uh, ready to be spent. Um, so, uh, so one of the things I'm hearing you say is that there's no comparison between unvaccinated children for a particular type of vaccine and illness and, un and vaccinated children in a particular vaccine, particular illness. How come they don't use like the Amish? Because aren't the Amish a group of people who do not vaccinate their children? Would be a great way to to test the efficacy and safety. Well, yeah, and and actually, you wouldn't even have to do anything. You just collect the data. You know how many Amish children get the measles, uh, even though they're not vaccinated. Yeah, and uh, and uh, that, that data that we cannot find that data anywhere, uh, having been effectively collected and used in the process that that designs the vaccine policy. What's the arguments for the pro-vaccine people, medic, the doctors and the scientists and the pu public policy uh, and regulators people for not wanting to compare and contrast uh, vaccinated versus unvaccinated 
for a particular vaccine and particular illness or disease? I, best, best to ask them. Uh, I'm, I, I don't quite understand why they don't, but, they're, but their basic argument is that they've established safety by testing each vaccine uh, specifically. Uh, there are some problems with that that, that that are troubling in that, for example, uh, in the measles outbreaks that led to the uh, California mandate law, uh, there were a significant percentage of people who got measles who had been vaccinated. So okay. that raises a serious, a serious question. You know, some percentage, maybe, you know, 25, 30 percent of the people who actually got, uh, got the measles had been vaccinated. So uh, that poses uh, a, an interesting question as to, and, and, and that's one of the reasons why testing, um, uh, testing in non-vaccinated people, that is measuring the data for non-vaccinated versus vaccinated would be a sensible course of action. But um, there's a lot of, uh, yeah, there's, that's not happened. I mean, exactly why it's unclear, but it would be a good idea to do that. Has there, is there a school of thought with maybe evolutionary biology where it might be, useful for some portion of the public to actually get some of these diseases because it might protect them from other longer-term chronic illnesses? Has that ever been explored? Well, well, there's, there is data. It's very interesting data. Uh, children that get the chickenpox, which is not a terribly serious disease, uh, have a long, have lifetime immunity. But if you get the vaccine, it's not lifetime immunity. And so that raises a question. Uh, and there are a lot of arguments that need to be looked at from a scientific point of view. Uh, like uh, whether or not uh, having gotten uh, chickenpox as a child, you're more or less protected from shingles. Um, there, it's quite possible that the vaccine effect uh, that you get from natural chickenpox may provide you with more protection against the shingles than uh, getting a shingle shot. Uh, and again, I want to make it very clear, these are areas that need to be looked at. And our point is, that you should not, that the ultimate decision maker on what gets injected into your body ought to be you. And for your children, you ought to be you for your children. And that should not be overridden, except in, the, in case of a, of a major uh, problem of some kind. Uh, you know, there has to be a finding somewhere. Somebody's got to say, this is a pandemic, or say whatever they're going to say. And now you, have to, you can mandate vaccines. Uh, that's not uh, in the structure right now. Right now, there's no, there's no trigger that says you must take the vaccine. It's just a flat out law in California, and they're trying to get it in pretty much every state. The law says you must, you, you are required to have this vaccination or you can't go to school. For some states, California included until recently, you would have philosophical and religious exemptions. Is that how it worked? Well, California, uh, uh, from 1961 to, to uh, 2015, had uh, the most uh, 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 friendly decision, uh, uh, consumer decision law on vaccines that passed in 1961 uh, in regard to the save an oral vaccine at that point. Um, they, had a, uh, they had a program uh, that even, even where there were mandated vaccines, uh, an individual could say, I don't want to take it. And that was of the law up until 20, uh, 2015. Um, California has gotten, uh, I don't know why they got all excited uh, in 2015, uh, but there were, there were arguments that uh, not enough uh, vaccination was going on in the schools because they only had something like 94% vaccination rate. And we're saying that's above what they claim is necessary for uh, herd immunity to the extent that that is a sound concept. 
uh, that's above that amount that they had a better vaccination rate. Well, then they, they came back and said, well, yes, but there are some schools that have lower than that. And then they had these outbreaks of measles that they pointed to. They were relatively minor outbreaks of, of measles. But the main reason you do vaccination is to make, make sure that even if there's a minor outbreak, it doesn't spread. But the problem that was involved, as I said earlier, is that uh, measles, um, people that got the measles vaccine, uh, uh, some of the people that got the measles, some of them, a significant number, uh, over, th over 30%, I believe, from the data that I've seen, uh, actually were vaccinated even though, and still got the measles. The problem is this is all complex stuff. I mean, for example, there's a condition that comes from uh, taking the measles vaccine uh, for a very small number of people have the uh, measles uh, antibody circulating naturally. And a very small number of those who are vaccinated uh, end up getting a very serious fatal disease called the subacute sclerosing panencephalitis. Doesn't mean much to anybody except uh, when, we, as we did, uh, had a, uh, a family with a child uh, who took about three years to die from this disease, uh, died when he was 12. Uh, he, he, they knew from the time he was nine that he was gonna die by the time he was 15. Uh, and, and, that, that, and that came directly from a vaccination. Yeah, a, a, it's a small number of people, very, very, very small, but very, very serious for the families that are involved. So what our proposal there that we made was, uh, why not have anyone who gets the measles vaccine be tested for circulating antibody before they get the, the shot. First of all, if you've got circulating antibody, you don't get more protection by getting them vaccinated. You, you're, you've got it already. Uh, and then um, uh, if you have circulating antibody, you have a very small chance of getting a fatal disease. So, uh, you know, a family could seriously get circulating antibody and I mean, get, get an antibody test and, and find out what are they taking a risk or not. That's the kind of thing we mean by saying vaccine choice. People need to have the ability to look into these things. And all 10 of the mandate, mandated vaccines in uh, California are, um, uh, have issues that would cause someone to want to sit down and think through uh, the pros and cons of taking the vaccine. Just for clarity's sake, you, so there are 10 that are mandated in California, but I heard you say in the number 70 there in total. There, there are 10, there are 10 uh, entities 10 agents okay and then those agents are given more than one time okay. and um and they are they're repeated uh over time and that's how many injections that it's estimated they'll get incidentally uh that that total of 70 is not necessarily um there there are other vaccines people might be taking at the same time that would be counted as a part of that 10 potentially okay. as a part of that 70 potentially can you speak to two things just for, for uh, education of the, of the listening audience? You mentioned herd mentality, uh, excuse me, herd immunity, because that seems to be an argument on, in favor of mandating vaccines. Can you speak to what that means? Well, the, the, the herd immunity argument in general is that um, uh, there is a certain point when if everybody, uh, uh, let, let's say for the moment, let's say, um, immunity is the goal. We want to have people who are immune. Uh, and if a large enough percentage of the herd, whatever that is, the herd uh, reaches that level of immunity, then um, the disease will not be able to spread. There's, there are two issues on a disease. One is getting it, 
and the other is, does it spread? So the theory is if there's a catchment area that's covered so that it, does, it can't, you can't spread it because the people are, have enough immunity to protect against it spreading, that is you can't get the disease because you've got immunity, then uh, 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 if there's enough, if the percentage is high enough, then uh, you can have a, uh, an agent break out in that herd, but it won't spread because it's not fertile ground for it. And so the issue is what is that percentage? And you know, it's 90% seems to be a pretty good number, 90, maybe 95%. Uh, some you know, people who want more herd immunity would argue 95 or 96%, 94% isn't enough. And uh, again, one of our arguments is that going from 94 to 96 should not be uh, justified to make, to force people to do it. Uh, and, and, and there's there's another underlying premise here that's extremely important, and we're going to see it now that this unfolds. Uh, there are two of them, actually. One is that all these mandates are for children. And so you've got a herd, but the herd is made up of adults as well as children. I mean, if you, you know, whoever lives in a, in a city or on a street or in a house, it's not just children. So you can have immunity for the children, and that will perhaps, you know, given everything, protect that child. It does not necessarily protect the herd because of all the people who are adults who are not in that vaccine vaccinated pool. And then uh, the argument that's made is uh, that uh, that what's happening is there's now a recommended uh, schedule for adults, and uh, they're moving in the direction of mandating adult vaccines. Um, you know, can't have a passport, uh, can't get a driver's license, so forth, things like that. They're, they're not doing it. That is, they haven't, they haven't proposed those things yet. They've just hinted around at them. But you can't really create real herd immunity in a community that only, it's, only vaccinates children. Uh, uh, the second, well, go ahead. No, no, well, let me ask Well, the second issue is, the second issue is, is at, and we have a lot of um, viral disease issues de developing, and the coronavirus is, is just one, but there's Ebola and others that are, are going on in Africa. Right now in Africa, there are serious problems with Ebola. And uh, the most important point that's being made by the public health people in Africa working on Ebola is that the number one tool to stop the spread of one of these diseases is community confidence in the public health people. Community confidence, the ability of the community to believe what they're being told by the doctors, the public health doctors. In the Congo, in central Congo, I think it was central, maybe on eastern Congo, but in any, any case, in the Congo, the UN took doctors in and they blocked all the um, various alternative medicine folks who say they have something that will build immunity. And the community started blocking the doctors because a lot of the things that they were comf comfortable with using and were part of their medicine were being blocked by the UN and they were trying to push vaccines in and other things. And uh, some of the leadership is saying, wait a minute, we have to have the support of the community in order to make these things stop. And I think we're going to see that in the uh, coronavirus as it unfolds. The best way to stop uh, these, these, vaccine, these uh, viral, viral diseases is by having the community support the behaviors, whatever they may be, support the behaviors of the um, uh, public health service. And, uh, and uh, that takes a lot of work. And mandating is a shortcut to getting people to take vaccines. 
are there any scientists who are critical of the concept of herd immunity or is that going settled? Dozens. Okay. There, there's a, it's a huge, interesting scientific debate. Uh, and all, all that we say from Citizens for Health and from our, our groups is consumers should be involved in that debate. They should be allowed to make a choice in that debate. And uh, we, we think that you must have informed consent and uh, that's the law, that's the, everybody says informed consent, and you can't have informed consent without cho choice. There's no, if, if you got all the information in the world, but when you're all done, you have to do the same thing you would have done if you had no information, you have not effectively actually, um, actually addressed the issue uh, of consent, for, informed consent. So that's a, you know, that's a, so that's a serious problem that needs to be addressed. Uh, these, this, see, this goes back to the whole point that we were, I was making at the beginning about how policy decisions are made. You cannot make policy decisions by having the order side of the debate tell the freedom side of the debate to shut up and sit down. Mm -hmm. Because all that will happen is it will, it will create a backlash that will undermine whatever the order team is saying. And uh, that's true on both the left and the right, because you've got You've got uh, freedom right people known as libertarians. You've got freedom left people known as, as, as basically their, 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 their cultural uh, out, outliers in a sense. They don't believe that they should do whatever the government tells them. They're on the left, they're on the right. And uh, interestingly enough, if you, uh, run the, um, if you run the statistics from the, uh, uh, the last uh, Obama, not the Obama election, but the Trump election, you'll see that there's a huge category of, of a huge set where people voted for Obama, where, where districts voted for Obama and then voted for Trump. And one of the, there are six to nine million individual voters that uh, if you tote them up for each election in the same district, there were six to nine million differential uh, that suggested people voting for Obama and then voting for Trump. That statistic and though, and by the way Trump won the election by uh, basically 77,000 votes in a handful of districts that's how the electoral college managed and um, and there's a whole question about what it means that these districts that went by six million votes for Obama ended up going by six to nine million votes the other way uh, in in the Trump period what is that why is that happening and uh, we, uh, we, we're, we think it's uh, what we would call the transpartisan constituency. That's a group of people who vote more for their stuff than they do, you know, their individual stuff than they do for any party stuff. And by the way, in the country, 70% of eligible uh, voters under the constitution uh, do not identify with either the Republican or the Democratic party. Now I'm saying, what, when I talked about vaccines, I'm saying that uh, that shows up in the vaccine debate um, it's going it's showing up already in the you mentioned 5g as uh, an issue showing up in 5g already there are uh, there are groups that are forming all across the country resisting uh, forcing 5g onto the communities across the country and uh, before, that, we get, before we get to the 5g let me just ask a couple of questions sure. kind of transition out of the vaccines to the broader question of order and freedom so would you the, the 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 left freedom folks are those like the Paul Ray cultural creative types? Is that that maybe that that, that seems to be very close to it? And there and and he identifies as about uh, the, the, he says fifty million, but when you actually do the data, 
you're probably talking about uh, 29 million people in his data. That was back when he did it in around 2000. Uh, probably there's a larger number, but cultural creatives, you could call them as kind of like the free left, although cultural creatives do you do include a number of libertarian right folks. Yeah, yeah, half my friends. <laughs> so, let, so let me ask you this. It's interesting because when you look at, because we're now to, you know, into the election cycle, all the Democrats are running against Trump. There's no one really competing against Trump in the Republican Party. So it's going to be Trump against whomever. When you listen to the debates, when you listen to the ads, when you listen to the talking heads, I don't hear anything on the freedom side, freedom right or freedom left side. It seemingly is all out of the order side. Why do you think that, the, if, if I'm correct, and maybe I'm wrong, the, the free left, free right is not, is not part of the conversation? Am I missing something? Government is an order institution. Everybody who signs up for government is an order person. Um, now, I want to make it very, very clear that the matrix that I'm talking about is inside every individual. So a person is not necessarily uh, free to write, and therefore you can predict them on any given issue. Uh, that's, and you, so you'll see across the board, you will see people saying, I'm, for example, I'm a social liberal, but I'm a fiscal conservative. Well, when they're a social liberal, that's their free self announcing itself when they're a fiscal conservative, that's their order side. And, and by the way, that can come on the right too. You can have, I, I remember I, we put a meeting together between classical liberals and libertarians and the libertarian guy said, well, we're the party for uh, 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 hot pistols and prostitution. If you look, if you look, if you were to take, for example, the Koch uh, brothers positions on issues like gay marriage and um, a whole range of social issues. You, if you just listed that and said, we don't know who this is, but we're gonna list this stuff, they would be, look like this there on the left because they have, a, they have a social liberal, if you call it, see, we don't, uh, Lori and I don't believe there's any such thing as a liberal and a conservative. We think those are made up, uh, made up um, labels that are put on people after they make their choices. Uh, and so um, you, what you're having is, is, as, the, as the culture gets more and more individualized, more and more people are able to express more and more of their own personal identities. And what it turns out is that on some things there would be quote, quote, liberal, and some things are conservative. And then they start expressing it and pretty soon the whole thing is going around like this. Now, if you go freedom order, people who are interested in government, who want to be involved in government, who want to make policy for it, tend to be on the order side. People who want to live free and not be object, and not be suppressed, and want to make their own choices tend to be on the free side, and it's very, um, it's unique. I mean, there is a tendency for the people who like freedom to let the guys who like order fight about it, but when it gets as bad as it is right now, I mean, you know, basically Trump's got, if you really, really get right down to it, in terms of the entire potential electorate, he probably doesn't have more than 25 or 30 percent support. Interestingly enough, neither did Obama. It's very interesting. They have roughly the same amount of public support, but that's not what the polls are on. The polls are on who voted, who's going to vote, who voted last time, who thinks they're going to vote. Um, if you're a, if you're an independent, are you more likely to vote liberal or conservative? That's the way, or you know, Democrat or Republican. That's the way they're talked about. It's always talked in that bifurcation. Uh, they're just like in the vaccine case. There's very little. Um, 
uh, I, 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 I'll give you a perfect example. Nevada has a none of the above ballot. None of the above ballot. You can go into any election in Nevada and you can check none of the above. I have never seen a poll that measures how many people are planning to vote none of the above. Okay. Now there may be in Nevada, but I've never seen them. And, and, and they don't play a role. Um, uh, if you look at, um, if you look at the, the primaries, essentially the primaries, except for the new ones, like they're going on in California, exclude anybody who's not a Democrat or a Republican. Yeah. Exclude them. They can't vote. Uh, fusion tickets are illegal all across the country, except New York. You know, New York, the only reason Bloomberg's in politics today is because they have more, more ballot lines than Democrat and Republican. So he, so he's a Democrat and he couldn't get the nomination of the Democratic Party. So he went to one of the third parties, got that nomination, and then got the Republicans to endorse that. That's how he got to be mayor of New York. And then he's now got a political career and he's going to run for president. There are two guys, there are two guys in the Democratic primary. That, here are all these Democrats running around saying, you're not a Democrat, you're not a Democrat, you're not a Democrat, therefore you should vote. Who are they talking to? There are two guys running, Sanders and Bloomberg, who are neither Democrats nor Republicans. I mean, Sanders, his entire life has not been a Democrat. He's still not a Democrat. Right. I don't think you'll ever be a Democrat. He's talking to the public. He's talking to the Democratic public, the people who are out there who want to choose president. Bloomberg. Bloomberg was Republican mayor of New York, three terms as a Republican mayor, and now he's running in the Democratic primary. He's a guy who's standing up and saying, I'm not a Democrat or Republican either. Um, now, they're forced to run in the Democratic primary because there's no other place for them to go. Uh, the, 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 the structure of that is that the 70% of the public that doesn't identify as either Republican or Democrat is now looking to them and saying, well, they're people that aren't the Republicans, they aren't the Democrats. It's really funny, you know, I, I saw Biden on the TV the other day saying, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Democrat. I figured every time he said that, he made votes for Bernie. Mm -hmm. um, you started talking about 5G, but before we get there, it just struck me, it might be of value to take an issue and run it through the matrix. Uh, short issue, not short, but, you know, really clear issue. And what crossed my mind is pornography. Mm -hmm. and, and if you could just walk through, like, how, what the order left, the order right, the free right, the free left, how they might think about the pornography as an issue and address it. Well, well, pornography is the number one thing selling on the Internet. Yeah, the Internet is the biggest market ever created. And there's nobody going to be um, effectively politically attacking pornography. It's not going to happen. Uh, if you do, you're gone. So they're going to have to. So basically, that's an issue that the, the free right and free, free, the free right and the free left are both uh, against laws banning pornography. So would, would the free right say it's it's economic freedom and the and the free left would say it's a you know, expression of one sexuality? I mean, is that, is well, that well, the general the general thing that happens is that the uh, the 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 free rights argument is we don't want anybody messing in our, in our um, uh, economic lives. They basically don't want anybody messing in any of their lives, but the, the, the right tends to say from the free side, they don't want people messing with uh, our personal lives, but the order side of the right says we do. 
So the order side of right wants to ban pornography. It wants to ban abortions. It wants to ban all, ban, 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 ban all the time. I, ironically, the right is much more upset about mandatory vaccination than the left. Hmm. So you have the order left running around saying you've got to have vaccination, you've got to have vaccination, and the order right is the order right and free right are saying no, you can't, no, you can't, and the free left saying no, you can't. So there's a dynamic there. But anyway, uh, I will give you, I'll tell you the the way the pornography issue gets misunderstood in the society. They they quote uh, uh, Justice Stewart saying in a big pornography case, he said, "I know pornography when I see it." And everybody goes around saying that's subjective, it's not meaningful, yada, yada, and I know pornography when I see it. What he actually said was, uh, it's a case, he's, he's looking at a case. I know pornography when I see it, and this isn't it. Now, the this isn't it category is the category where if you're trying to divide the world into, into A and minus A, this isn't it is the, place that's in between. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's, in, it's enshrined in the law in one place, which is in the Scottish verdict. Uh, the Scottish verdict goes guilty, uh, guilty, not proven to be guilty, not guilty. Hmm. So there's an, an intermediate category. Um, the not proven to be guilty is, it has the same practical effect, but it's a different, uh, it's a different structure. So my, my, my point is that like uh, you're saying the, 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 the free left, free right, order freedom, order left on the uh, pornography issue. Right now, I don't think there's any traction for the pornography question in politics. There is traction on anti-abortion and there is traction on uh, moving, uh, attempting to move uh, uh, opposition to birth control uh, into that category. Um, just, just, for, just for like uh, understanding the matrix sake, um, so would the, would the order right on pornography argue against it on religious grounds? As an example, the order left would argue against it on demeaning of women, objectifying women, as an example. I mean, is that like how the... That would be an example. Up? That's an example. Okay. But, but there's a whole argument uh, in the pornography world debate of women saying banning porn, banning the adult sex trafficking, not trafficking, but adult sex participation demeans women. Because, because women have the ability to be, have the agency to make the choice about how they wanna live their lives. They're not harming anybody as long as consent's involved and so forth. It's up to them to make their own decisions. So you have, and, and it's not at all clear, uh, it's not at all clear how the freedom order piece fights there be, or, 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 or lives there because it's a, it's, a, it's a funny thing about the law, because there's a whole thing about decriminalizing stuff, which is different than making it legal. Mm -hmm. So we went through the whole thing of decriminalizing marijuana until it got to be legal. A decriminalizing means instead of getting put in jail, you get a ticket. Yeah. And I mean, that's essentially what it means. And, 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 and then the, the point, the point we're, we're making and our team on the transpartisan world and so forth, the point we're making is that every time you make it a black and white issue, you, you decree that you will come up with the wrong decision. It's flat out, you'll come up with the wrong decision. And, and can you, can, can someone inside that, or having the transparency matrix inside oneself take the position, using pornography as an example, that, for, that adults should be free to participate in it if it's consensual, 
but I don't think it's a good idea. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. Yeah, because see, the, the, uh, the, our culture is designed to operate extra governmentally, extra formally. And all the decisions that keep things, keeps things the, the vast majority of decisions that keep things going are made by individuals making informed choices. Uh, that's why Jefferson said, in order for democracy to exist, you're going to have to have a lot of education. And so an individual could say, look, I don't think an abortion is a good idea, but I think it's worse to have a law against abortion. Why is it worse? Well, it's worse because you're very likely to have more abortions if you make a law against them than if you don't. Uh, I've worked uh, with some of the um, right to life groups and it's very interesting. And, and there, there are a lot of them very uh, concerned about this. And there's a lot of dialogue between, uh, right, not a lot, but there's good dialogue between right to life, right to choice groups. And the right to life side, it's interesting because one of the points I try to make is that there are just about as many spontaneous abortions called miscarriages as there are intentional abortions. And it's roughly estimated scientifically that three quarters of them are from environmental causes, chemicals in the environment. And in fact, when I was talking to some right to life people about it, I said, you know, there are abortions being caused right today by chemicals in the environment. And this woman said, oh my God, she was there because she'd been sprayed by a, I, I had an abortion. I had a, a miscarriage, a six month miscarriage. Mm. And so I, you know, and I said, well, you know, and she was a very feisty activist type. I said, you know, the next time you're having a meeting about what to picket, why don't you think about picketing some chemical plants and call the public's attention to this fact? Because, because there is a possibility of creating a law about putting chemicals that cause abortions into the environment, that would be a transpartisan issue. Yeah, uh, yeah. By the way, they went to some of the leadership in the Right to Life movement, and they said, no, we don't want to do that. Yeah. But that was kind of interesting. Uh, that's unfortunate, because that's, uh, as you would say, strange bedfellows and interesting inter-issue inter um, meshing. Um, hopefully, you'll continue pushing that conversation. Well, we're gonna, it's, it's, it's breaking out everywhere on, on all kinds of issues. And, uh, you know, I don't know about the abortion issue uh, at this point, but it's, it's very interesting. If you, if, you take, um, if you take the abortion debate and the gun debate and lay them down side by side, they're just a complete mirror image. Um, one side is trying to restrict abortions or ban them, and the other side is trying to restrict guns or ban them, and they're using all the same arguments for their position. And it's fascinating. Uh, uh, there, there's an argument, for example, there's a whole argument that the, the Supreme Court upheld the Second Amendment with its Heller case here in Washington. However, since then, there have been, uh, been many, dozens, about 5,000 cases in the courts about laws restricting um, access to guns in one way or another. 85% of them, the courts have upheld. Um, they've uh, had a batch uh, go to appeals courts. Appeals courts have upheld all of them. A handful, very small number, have gone to the Supreme Court, you know, they appealed to the Supreme Court and certiorari, but they've been denied, turned down by the Supreme Court. And um, it was um, one of the justices said, what we upheld in Heller was the, the right of the individual to have a handgun in the home for self-defense. That's what they upheld. That could be analyzed in our law as a privacy right rather than a um, rather than a Second Amendment right, and um, they're being very very careful. The court is very very careful on how they look at the gun issue. And all I'm saying is that the people who argue on that, that the argument on the gun side pro and uh, pro and con 
and the argument on the abortion side, pro and con, is all around the question of mandates. Who's going to ban what? And then all the stuff starts uh, fueling out from there. Right. So uh, we talked about, we mentioned 5G at the beginning of this conversation, and you started getting to it, but I, I just kind of want to pull back and use a, a few examples to talk through your matrix. Talk about 5G as a general issue, that why consumers and citizens should be concerned, and then plug it into the matrix. Well, well, first of all, they should be concerned because um, there is uh, data suggesting that there are health problems with the um, with the um, uh, 5G. With it's not only and, and it's important to know that 5G is a is a slogan. It's an advertising slogan. There is no such thing as 5G. Uh, basically, the, the the core technology is 4G technology, and then the government auctioned off a bunch of um, a bunch of the uh, frequencies at the higher end uh, to the four the four major uh, uh, telecom companies and uh, so okay now what they what they say is that the communications act of 1997 i believe it is the communications telecommunications act says uh, that uh, local communities cannot write uh, led, write uh, stat, uh, statutes ordinances to say where you can put towers uh, it doesn't say that, but they say it does, and it's all being litigated in court now, and it's, it's going to be a huge battle. 100, about 150 cities are in court saying that's not what the law says, and they're going after the FCC for having set up a, a uh, standard. The standard that they've set up is a standard that says um, basically the only problem you have to worry about from uh, uh, EMF, electromagnetic, uh, emissions. The only thing you have to worry about in your cell phone is uh, the heat. It's too hot. Now, do you know? Do you know that inside your cell phone it says keep it at least uh, this far away from your head? It doesn't. And I I watch people all the time going like this, but it says. And I I, I was very very intrigued once I heard a guy on the radio about 1995 96 from the telecommunication industry saying this thing about cancer from uh, from cell phones is just crazy. He said, yeah, sure, a lot of people got tumors where they use their cell phone, but they were all benign. And I'm sitting here saying, holy cow, if I'm getting a tumor, I don't care whether it's benign or not. I mean, I prefer it to be benign and not benign, but I'd rather not have it at all. But anyway, so first thing is, there are a series of health problems, and there's a lot of data saying there's a health problem. But the way that the scientific community has set up the regulatory science process, they're saying if the science not, is not conclusive, if you can't prove cause and effect, then we're going to treat it as if it doesn't have a cause and effect. That's the, uh, pr the matrix, uh, the, you know, that's a three-part breakup that I said at the beginning. There, there, there's a whole middle piece, we don't know, and the industry is saying, we're going to treat it as if it's safe until someone proves otherwise. Now, the problem with that is, of course, the day that it's conclusive, You've had millions of people exposed and probably thousands of them harmed. And uh, there are people all over the country now being harmed. They're stepping forward. They've got now they've created a new disease identity, identity which is being, a, being uh, having a susceptibility to the, those electronic waves. And that susceptibility is now a disease. And it's, you know, it's estimated 4 to 6% of the population uh, suffers from that. Uh, and now it's being treated as a minor problem because it's only four to six percent of the population. But once again, when you meet somebody like that and you see what happens to them, there's a very um, well-known um, phone designer for Ericsson 
who um, back in the 90s uh, actually would not go out of the house, he could not go out of the house without wearing an aluminum suit to protect himself. Um, and he's got some videos on, online, it's kind of interesting. But these people may very well be the, the proverbial canary in the mine. They may be the proverbial people who are getting harmed now uh, when other people are going to get more, more and more people are going to get harmed as it gets more and more spread out. So the arguments being made at the FCC is you should be looking at non-thermal side effects. So that's one problem. Second problem, massive hacking. When you put the uh, when you put these waves out into the environment, they're easy to hack. So again, we have a project called Safe G, and our argument is wired wired to the premises, wired to the home and office, wired. We believe if you wire, you'll actually have a, a much less uh, hackable uh, system. And then, of course, that translates over to national security issues because again, a wired system is more secure. So we're saying, you know, the fiber to the fiber to the premises. We want protective stuff in the home, shielding and uh, other things that you can do with the with the um, uh, EMF when it gets into your home. And then there are some tighter communication systems that you can use uh, that that are more focused. Uh, they're they're an analogy would be like a laser. Um, now, if you put that all together as a policy, you're going to come up with a much better outcome. What we have right now is um, that the matrix is, matrix is right there because you've got people on both the left and the right who are saying, why are we shoving this thing down the throats of the local communities? And when I say left and right, I mean, they're, they're there. Some of the, if you go into the companies, you go into the tech companies, you will find that the technical side of the companies tend to be on the side of saying, why are we shoving this down the throats of people where the marketing people are saying, let's shove it down their throats. And generally across the board, that tends to happen. Marketers want to shove the, the best business plan you can have in the world is that the government requires it. If the government requires it, you got to market. If you don't require it, then you got to go sell. And that's tough. And selling anything is tough. Can, can you speak to, you mentioned that 5G is a marketing gimmick. It's actually 4G. So well, explain that well, to well, the, the, the one analysis, and, I, and, and when, when you're doing a matrix uh, type analysis of what's going on, you have to recognize that there will be many different stories of what might actually be happening. And our argument is they all have to be considered. So one of the arguments that's being made that's uh, important is that 4G was failing. Now, all, all the G means is first generation, second generation, third, fourth, and fifth. And uh, their technology, of 4G and 5G, at least for the moment, is essentially the same because they haven't done any of the technical stuff to really engage the higher frequencies. And by the way, on the, on the wired side, uh, we are about 17% wired, I think it's about 17%, but almost all other um, uh, industrial countries are wired at 50% uh, or more. And, uh, and we were, when we laid out our wires, they're out there. Uh, back in the 90s and in, uh, in the, in the, uh, in the, in the aughts, uh, we put wires everywhere, but then for, I, this is a different issue, but I mean, it's part of the story. We ended up moving um, the whole thing into, uh, into, uh, into Wi-Fi away from wired, which was a huge structural mistake. And it's going to put us way behind China. We're behind China right now 
uh, largely because they have got a much tighter, more more productive system than we do behind Europe too, I believe. But anyway, um, the um, as you've got this, you've got a situation where you've got these folks that um, uh, they're 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 harmed. Uh, you, you've got a situation where um, uh, you've got 4G operating, and and remember they're all advertising gimmicks. 4G is at, is operating, and it's creating havoc in the culture. It it is it, it is a failure on a very profound set of levels. So, for example, Uber. New York City had about twenty five thousand cabs when Uber began to land in the city, and Uber there are now hundred thousand Uber drivers in New York City. It's just ripping the heck out of the city. So they're going around trying to figure out how to take the old 19th century licensing system and creating something to deal with Uber. Same thing with Airbnb. Airbnb is just driving the, the, the uh, comfort industry, the hotel industry to distraction. And, and now, now, now on, on, on the a large world, the large world framework, it's a good idea for people to become more and more individualized and more and more able to express themselves and be able to ch make choices of all kinds. And that's how there's, that's how, when they were doing what they called 4G, that's how they were doing Airbnb, um, um, Uber, Uber's got scooters in Washington and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, all these things are coming out, but their social impact was never considered. And so they were having a bad situation and they were starting to get shaky on the stock market. I mean, it's, 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 if you're an investor, you want confidence, you want certitude, you want to be careful. You, want, you don't want to invest in something that's going to make New York City mad or Amsterdam mad or, you know, whatever. You don't want to do that. So they're shaky. So now they made up the idea, 5G. This is a story that one team tells. Because they could go to Wall Street and say, put money in because you're going to have self-driving cars. You're going to be able to do cancer, cancer surgeries online. You're going to be, and they got a whole list of things they can do. But the experts that we've been talking to say that's all hype for Wall Street so that the Wall Street investors can get involved and put their money in. Now what's interesting is the people who are full-time always working Wall Street know the game. It's push it up and just before it goes down sell it. That's margin but, call. The movie's about that. Can you explain why 4G was a failure? I'm a little confused. 4G was a failure because it turned out a bunch of social results that were negative. Um, uh, I'll, I'll tell you, okay. uh, if you want to pursue what I'm saying, there's a whole big wonderful promotion on the internet right now from um, uh, uh, about uh, the book, um, uh, uh, Life After Google. And um, the, the author of that book, I've got his name right now, uh, that author, um, his argument is that uh, within the next 10 to 20 years, Google will occupy a position in the uh, consciousness of the culture that AOL occupies right now. That basically it's going to, it's going to just disappear, essentially. Uh, and he has a whole set of arguments why. And they build around the fact that, the, that there was a huge error made uh, in the beginning of the tech world, which was the notion of exploiting the identity of the individual without creating anything in return. So the individual is constantly giving, 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 they're taking, 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 and then selling, selling, selling. 
and he's got a whole analysis. He's got a book. He's got arguments. You can watch him on YouTube. So, so 4G as a technology is works. It's just that there's social cost to uh, institutions that are utilizing it for their ends. Is that what well, it I depends hear? on? It depends on what you mean by works. I mean, um, faster speed for downloads. Well, it's not. It's, it's it's not. It's not as fast as uh, it, 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 it being a Wi-Fi thing. It's not as fast as it would be on wired. Wired is much faster. Uh, Chinese are much faster. Most of Europe's much faster. Um, they're having a tough time uh, keeping up. Just in the world of tech, they're having a tough time keeping up. And we're saying uh, a, a, a part of the reason for that is that the technology they have is a is a less developed technology. Um, and it, this is part of the whole analysis I said from the beginning that we have we have large concentrated entities that are corporations in this country making decisions that are policy decisions. So so uh, they put out uh, the 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 four uh, G one two three and four G really did hype up the individuals' abilities, but not nearly as much as it could have just on the on the on the bare technical competence of the actual technology it is not as good as it could be there are hundreds of things that are failed all over silicon valley that are better technically than the things that have succeeded but they didn't have the driving the money the uh, the investment and so forth that the marketing guys were able to create so what happened is they went out there without looking at the social implications and the result was you had a a a, a, a a mediocre technical system, and you know you can see it in the debate between uh, Apple and Microsoft. You know Apple says we're a much more technical, better sound system. Apple, uh, Microsoft is a much more clunky and yada yada. Well, that's essentially true from everything I can tell. Uh, but the marketers were able to sell Microsoft much better than they were able to sell um, uh, to sell the the uh, Apple um, uh, the Apple computer devices. Well, what did Apple do? They come up with a telephone. And uh, and they, they did a different. They took all that technology uh, of the of the uh, numbers and put it into a different format, and were able to come back economically. So that would be an example where a highly a highly uh, um, advanced technology fell behind the market's forces. That's an example. But with Uber, you come up and you and you and you put four times as many cars on the road in New York. And in New York, going crazy with that. They've got, they're trying to pass laws to stop that. Airbnb comes in and starts making hotels go bankrupt. And there's people trying to reorganize that industry. Um, uh, and this is, this is how what happens when you take concentrated economic interests that can buy a technological shortcut, put it into place, and then use it to drive the society on the basis of the intrinsic power of the technology, but at the same time, not get the full value of the intrinsic power because they're going after the concentrated economic power. Now, that's not, that, that's not a bad thing per se, but it's badly applied. Too much of the technology is being pushed aside by too much of the marketing. And by the way, that's the same thing in the cars that Nader was talking about, same thing in the food that I was talking about. It's in housing, you can see it in housing. Uh, right across the board in our culture, we're doing that systematically. The optimums that we could have are cut short by the, um, by the um, uh, uh, shortcut method to make money, basically. And it's, right. by the way, that's not the, the, the capitalism where free market capitalism is not supposed to work that way. 
Well, let's actually use food as an example because it just struck me, you know, conventional agriculture is a prime example of concentrated economic power in a select number of companies. They, they, they socialize the cost uh, of their production to the co negative health consequences to the farmers who have to wear these biohazard suits, the low, low uh, nutrition density of the foods they produce, the destruction of the local <laughs> uh, watersheds, and even further down this downstream uh, water areas are being destroyed by the excess pesticides and herbicides and, and such. Um, so is that like, would that be an example? Absolutely. That's a perfect example of what we're talking about. It, it repeats itself everywhere. Take the, take the Boeing planes. I mean, it's amazing to look at what happened. Airbus came along with an airplane designed around a basic principle. And the principle was, we, we are, the, the United States has the best pilots in the world. They come out of basically the Navy and the Air Force, primarily. I, I personally, as a Navy person, think they come from the Navy, but that's just a bias <laughs> on my part. But the Navy and the Air Force turn out really good pilots that do a career and then, and then go, however long that is, then they go fly for the airlines. And they're very skilled. They're very competent. They're very good. And Boeing builds planes for them. The Europeans are sitting over there saying, look, you know, we've got billions of people out here who will fly, but we have to have lots and lots of airplanes to do that. And so we have to make something really simple. And so they made the Airbus. It's a really simple plane. A friend of ours, a flyer, he says, listen, I, I get in the Airbus and I try to fly the Airbus and it's like driving a truck. It's really easy. I mean, I, you know, it's not that driving a truck's easy, but it's a whole lot easier than driving a, a, Boeing, a Boeing plane. And they built an entire market on that. Well, as they were coming along, Boeing sitting there and saying, holy cow, we're going to get really undercut. And the federal government wants Boeing because it's an important defense contractor. So they made a big deal to redesign their 737. It's the same way that, they, uh, that one of the Ford cars was redesigned into the Corvair. Mm -hmm. And they, 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 the Corvair was made longer and it was made to drive, uh, uh, you could make it, it was gonna be a family, originally it was a high performance sports car and they changed it slightly and made it a family car. And a lot of people weren't good enough to drive the sports car as a family car and they started turning over and killing people. And that's how the Corvair thing developed and that's how Nader got to be Nader. Uh, and uh, there's still a huge debate because there are a lot of people who think the Corvair was the best car ever made and it very well might be, it just wasn't the kind of car that the average guy or woman could drive the family to church with. I mean, and they were just, okay. Okay, so they put the Airbus out there can be driven by relatively untrained people. And then they went all through Asia and they found people who were smart people, good people, capable people, but they had not gotten hundreds of hours of training how to land a plane on an aircraft carrier. And so they were, but they could fly the Airbus. It was a lot harder to fly the, the enhanced 737. Uh, in fact, there's an argument uh, that's made, you'll hear it made and you can see it made, that a, a really good pilot might very well have overcome the problems that caused the two crashes. Uh, when you read very carefully, you find out that the pilots in the, um, in the plane that, was, uh, that crashed in Africa, uh, actually the plane was pulled up 12 times and pushed down by the, by the computer 12 times. Each time a little lower, a little lower, a little lower. If you're going a little lower every time, eventually you hit the ground. Um, but they were good pilots who couldn't overcome it. Now, there's, a, I think, a lot to talk about there. But nonetheless, the plane was made to be much more complex than the Airbus. And I think Boeing's just hanging on by its fingernails to make sure they don't lose the entire market the way things are right now.
that's an example of the same situation in which a, a, you, could, you, could, you could actually put a really good technology in the field and actually do something that really exploited all, you know, harnessed all the potential of the technology for really valuable purposes, but it ends up with the marketers coming in and saying, no, 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 we got to change it and move it really quickly. And uh, that's true. Your, your example of food, your example of the Airbus, my example of the Airbus, uh, this 5G is that way, the vaccine situation, they're all situations in which getting it into the market and making money off of it becomes a very important aspect of the decision-making that overrides the social, social utility. Well, and I would also have to add for most, if not all of these examples, cronyism, where you have uh, you know, large uh, corporations and big government colluding together for the benefit of these large corporations, because there's that revolving door between people who sit on these boards and work for these companies, and then coming from the uh, regulatory agencies, et cetera, et cetera. So when you mentioned you know, free market capitalism, these are not examples of free market capitalism. These are They're the antithesis of it. Yeah, uh, because uh, when you do a uh, when you do a um, uh, when, when you when you create a concentrated uh, it's basically oligopoly or monopoly where you have a small group of people uh, making decisions for a large market, uh, it will always go in the direction of making more money. Every single every single decision that comes up and says we can do this or make money. You know, we can do this or make more money. We can do this or make more money. Every one of those decisions will all be, be based on we'll make more money. The only way you can, the only way you can uh, oppose that argument is if we do this bad thing that's going to kill people, it is going to cost more money. Okay. That's the only way you can do it. Uh, even on the uh, Pinto, when the Pinto was burning up, uh, there was there was a memo that calculated out 200 deaths from the Pinto every year. Uh, burning up was uh, was less expensive than uh, than doing the reengineering on the car to make it so it didn't burn. So they figured they they just figured the cost of 200 lives. Okay, that's we we can accept that because it's cheaper than getting rid of it. And and the point is that you can't have policy decisions about how society is going to run made by an individual special interest inside that society because it will always make its decisions against um it will always make its decisions for itself which will tend to be against the collective and the result of that i mean i love it cleveland had a bunch of really great uh uh trolley cars um and uh and all across the country there were trolley cars i think it could go from boston to chicago going on one trolley thing to another and uh, General Motors just came in and said, you know, let's get rid of those. And they did all across the country, right out here in Washington. They're, they're covered over track. And um, now we're bringing it all back, trying. That's what the metro <laughs> things are all about everywhere. Right. So that's an example of what I would talk about. There. So let's go back to the vaccines. We have people who are going to be watching and listening to this and they're going to think to themselves, okay, I'm better informed about the debate. What can I do to help? Jim Turner and the transpartisan activists who want to have a choice when it comes to vaccines? Well, there are uh, all kinds of movements all over the country working on legislation. Uh, California has got the most radical uh, mandated vaccine law. 
Um, it was pushed by a, uh, an MD pediatrician who's in the legislature, who was a very large recipient of campaign contributions from the drug industry. It's a very lucrative market for the drug industry. Like I say, mandate the best market in the world you can have is have a law that says you got to use my product. Right. Um, and um, the um, that in that situation, uh, there are many groups in California that are working up, but there are about 40 states across the country in which there's legislation. So you want to check in your in your neighborhood, your country, or your your, your state. Um, and um, it, there, it's interesting because now gradually the, the, the movement is starting to shift. So there are now beginning to be laws that are being pushed in states that say, um, you, um, we don't, we, we want to preserve the, man, uh, preserve the, uh, uh, the uh, opt-outs. And uh, so those are now being debated. New Jersey just had a huge battle in which the opt-out they, they try to repeal the, um, the medical exemption, essentially, uh, uh, I guess, medical and religious. I mean, they were trying to get rid of all opt-outs, and they failed. Um, and uh, that, now that's going to continue. So look in each state. There's a, a, there's a group called the Vaccine Information Center, which you can find online, the Vaccine Information Center. Uh, they have a, a, a rundown state by state of what the legislative battles are. That's a good place to look. Uh, there are a lot of consumer groups that are organized for consumer choice, uh, and it, and uh, you know it's really funny because the um, the um, radical pro mandate people uh, run around and say people who are saying consumer choice are uh, obviously uh, anti-vaxxers. So if you see somebody using the term anti-vaxxer, you can figure they're a, a, a radical mandator, uh, <laughs> and uh, and the radical mandate movement is pretty much fueled by uh, by industry. Uh, and the, the question is, you know, how do we, how do we get a sensible discussion going that says when does the government have the right to mandate a vaccine? Uh, it does, it clearly does, if it meets certain requirements. And the question is, how are we going to get that to be the law, which is what the Constitution says, in my opinion, how do we get the laws to be congruent with that? And that's what I think the battle is in the country. And it's going on in every, essentially every state. Um, and you can find anybody who wants to help on either side, as far as I'm concerned, can go find out what's going on and then they can go out there and fight about it. But what I want to do is get people who are aware that there's an issue and there's aware that there's information and then start looking at the information. Mm -hmm. So, And also, why don't you plug Citizens for Health, too? How can people learn more about that? Citizens.org. Awesome. Citizens.org um, is the Citizens for Health. Uh, and uh, we communicate uh, two or three times a week with different issues, all kinds of issues. I mean, uh, our basic point is, uh, ba our, basic, our basic premise is the, uh, uh, back in 1962, President Kennedy sent a Consumer Bill of Rights to Congress. And our basic premise at Citizens for Health is to advance that uh, in the health area, but we think the health area co co covers a whole lot of things, like there's healthy housing, healthy energy, and so forth. But Citizens for Health, uh, looks at the consumer right to safety, choice, information, and redress, the right to be heard. Uh, and the, that's what we promote. And so choice is key, then informed choice is key, and then uh, the government steps in and protects you uh, for things that uh, consumers are not able to protect themselves on alone. They, they, can't, they can't make a choice on certain things. Uh, we, you know, there are certain things that are, you're not allowed to do, and that's on, you know, auto safety stuff has been developed, and there's food safety stuff, and so on, and uh, those things are the safety piece, and then what we say is uh, the, mar the market needs to be, have feedback, 
upfront. They need to hear and listen and heed the feedback from the consumer and uh, government needs to do that too and make policies that include consumers. And then for 5G, um, can you, if someone's listening to this and says, I, I had no idea that the possibility that really 4G, but marketing is 5G, uh, has these negative, possible negative consequences to at least this three to 4% of the population and perhaps, you know, canary in the coal mine, much broader numbers of people will eventually have neurodegenerative disorders and cancer and other such things from this technology as it proliferates in our communities. What can, what would you recommend they go do or who should they? Well, go we have a group, we put a group together called Safe G, okay. which is uh, putting out all the information we can find on all sides and we can find it on the debate about 5G around the premise that um, wired to the premises, uh, protection in the premises and coherent, more coherent communications in the whole system as a project, as a program, will eliminate much of the problem of health problems, hacking problems, and national security problems. I mean, that's our, that's our package, Safe G. I think you can Google Safe G at this point. If not, you will be able to soon. But it's there, and it's got a it's got a presence, and it's putting stuff out, and uh, working on issues, and uh, it's connected to a lot of activists across the country. Excellent. And if people want to learn more about uh, your writings, yours and Lori's writings, when it comes to transpartisan thinking, well, that you can go to the Transpartisan Review. Just uh, Google the Transpartisan Review. We put out uh, we put out a couple of things a week on that, and uh, and, and we talk about. Uh, we look at issues from the standpoint of the matrix, the way we are talking about it. So the transpartisan review will give you a, uh, an insight into the, the thought process that underlies all these other things. Awesome. And Lori, uh, Lori Chickering, uh, the co-editor, author, and founder of this, uh, is very involved in something called um, Educate Girls Globally, which is a transpartisan educational uh, initiative. Uh, which is an important part of what we're talking about. And that's, uh, we, we talk about that on the, on the, uh, the Transpartisan Review site. All right, so I'm going to invite you back because we didn't get a chance to talk about the Quincy Institute or, or homeopathy. So Oh, yeah, and, and, the, and the Quincy Institute is very important. You can just check the Quincy Institute and see. It was a very interesting conference. They're going to post all of the speeches and so on. And it's, it's the idea, of, and they use the word transpartisan, and uh, they have people from uh, all, all four quadrants actually were at this meeting yesterday. Uh, by the way, they didn't know they were from all four quadrants. That was what was really fun. I mean, everybody thought they had the right answer. And you know, you look at it and you see all these arguments. I got the right, I got the, I got the, I, and you look at it and say, well, now if you could ever figure out how to get all that together in a policy, then you would have something approaching the right answer. And they are, uh, they are their, their mission is to put an end to endless war. I think that's the way they, I think that's roughly what they say. Nice. Well, I definitely encourage folks to check out all these various groups, sign up for the newsletters, be an informed citizen, and uh, help move some of these transpartisan issues forward. Jim Turner, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. I'd love to come back on homeopathy. That's important. So uh, give, me a, give, me a, give me a jingle. Will yeah, do. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jim. You're welcome.